in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So there's a running joke in my family that whenever I am driving my brood somewhere and they're about to get out, I say to them, as they leave, whatever you do, don't embarrass the family. <laughs> and uh, Larry, Moe, and Curly jump out and... And, and to um, assure me that they receive the message, at least one of them screws up their faces, picks their nose, and lets out a belch. <laughs> I might be slightly exaggerating, but it certainly is within the spirit, within their wheelhouse. It's what they do. <clears throat> and in that moment, I'm just realizing, what am I saying in that moment? Uh, please, whatever you do, uh, don't do something that will bring a reputational problem, uh, a reputational tarnish upon our family. Like, that hasn't happened already. Um, just don't add to it. Don't compound the problem, will you? is maybe a stretch, but at every point in someone's pilgrimage with Jesus, there is a point at which you might start to feel the same impulse uh, that the impulse that Jesus' family felt with him and the passage that we're going to look at today. They're going to try to rein him in. Um, they think that he's starting to become an embarrassment to the family. And what I think they're out to do, and here's a big word, I think they're out to domesticate him, and I think that you and I are, are very... Uh, tempted to do that too, to, dest- to, to domesticate Jesus, to, to try to turn him into the family dog. Get, sit, sit off the couch, right? Don't bark at the postman. All of that. We feel this impulse to make Jesus kind of conform to our expectations, and for goodness sake, if we bring him out in public, please behave. Please, please don't offend. That's that's domesticating Jesus. But he, he won't let us do that. He can't. And, and the thing about Christmas is we, we conceptualize of Jesus as laying there entirely. And we should. It's his birth, right? That's where babies, they're in the manger. But at some point, we all have to come to the realization, like John Nash in A Beautiful Mind, where he realizes that his, all of his hallucinations are of a girl that never grows up, and he, and he finally realizes, she never grows up, right? And if she never grows up, she can't be real. Um, beloved guests, people watching from wherever, if Jesus never leaves the manger, then he will not be real. As important as that is, we can't domesticate him. And I want to flesh that out a little bit. What do we mean by domesticating him? Why can't we domesticate him? And, and what are the implications of this one? We're going to do a little differently, though. Um, you may notice every week, if you go online on our resource page for any given sermon week, we put a bunch of discussion questions. For those of you that want to talk about it afterwards or are in groups and you want to talk about the things that you heard in worship, we have discussion questions. Well, this week, this sermon is going to be kind of in a dialogical form because one of you is brave enough to go on camera and take some of those questions and without warning or preparation answer in real time what you thought you'd come up with. So, Levi Gibbs, if you're here, God bless you. We're going to let you speak to some of those questions and that's going to kind of tease its way, thread its way through the sermon. Why can't we domesticate him? Three reasons. Because of the war that Jesus is waging. Because of the kind of faith that Jesus is inviting. But also because of the kind of family that he is out to form. The war that he is waging, 
the nature of the faith that he is inviting and the kind of family that he is forming. That's why we can't domesticate him. So let's find out. We're in Mark again, chapter 3. We'll start in verse 20. I wonder if you might stand that we might hear. Our central text for today is found in Mark 3, 20 through 35. Then he went home, and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came and were standing outside. They sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. A lot of you get Christmas cards at Christmas of all times, and uh, a lot of you make those Christmas cards. Uh, I've, I've yet to have dare anybody take me up on the dare that um, of the text that they choose in their Christmas card that it says, um, I come to not bring peace but a sword, <laughs> um, which is what Jesus says. Um, it's not nearly quite as quaint and, and uh, uh, given to a, a snow-covered landscape, but it's still coming out of his mouth. And that's a moment in which he's out to say, I'm not going to be domesticated. In this passage, it's another familiar moment in which we find him at a place, somewhere at home, whatever that home means, and it's standing room only again. Uh, everybody wants to listen to what he's talking about, and his family has shown up, and they're outside um, not because they want to sit and hang on every word, but because they think he's flipped. They think Jesus has flipped. Why? Well, if you've been with us, you know that already Jesus has demonstrated a certain appreciation for things unseen and forces that are out there, the things that he has said, the works that he has done, the claims that he has made. Everybody's starting to go, I'm sorry. Your boy saying that, <laughs> you may want to, you know, intervention time, they show up. They want to rein him in. They want to domesticate him because they're in some ways scandalized by what's going on and what he's starting to do in their midst and everybody else's. He's getting a reputation. Well, before they can make headway in, in reining him in, the, the Pharisees, they're on site also. And they're saying, oh, family, you just think he's tripped. It's worse. He's dangerous. 
He's dabbling in stuff that nobody should mess with. He is speaking of things and of forces that are allegedly arrayed against people in this world, and somehow he is messing with them. And it would appear from the position or the perspective of the Pharisees that Jesus has come to be demonic. He is operating with a set of tools and a set of skills and a set of powers that would seem to mark him as one who is captured by darkness. That's their conclusion. And before we go any further, let's pause for just a minute because I know where we are. I also know when we are. I know that you and I live in a world in which there is such thing as germ theory. I know that you are aware of computer-generated CGI, that uh, you know all about uh, tectonic plates. I know that you're worried of, aware of the scientific method. So are we really talking about demonic forces here? Can I speak of those things with a straight face? Well, here's when I'll bring Levi in for the first time. Because I want to let him answer the question, what about, what about evil? So just listen to one man's take on the question about evil. I actually see that in a lot of friends that are in the armed forces that they believe in the evil because they've they've gone out in the world and they've they've seen it. Um, whereas a lot of, say, my college friends or people who really ha are, are sheltered are more likely to say, well, people are just making bad decisions. People are not, there's not an evil presence because they've been sheltered. But the biggest parameter, the biggest influence on whether somebody believes evil or not is like what they've seen in the world. Yeah. I know there's all sorts of things that we might marshal as evidence to suggest that it's all in somebody's head who demonstrates that kind of awareness of things that seem to be nothing but darkness. That's fine. So, you know what? Let's just play skeptic's advocate just for a second. We, we should think out our options here. The, the Pharisees, Jesus' family, they're all responding to the fact that he has, in, on several occasions, even thus far in our study of Mark, dabbled with those that seem to be afflicted by something other than something that's just in their head. So what are the options? One option is this. Mark just made it up. These are fabricated stories out to impress you, out to create an impression in you. They're fake. It's fake news. But boy, it tells a great story. That's one option. What about that? Look, if you believe that, I understand why you might. I know where we are and when we are. But there are plenty of scholars out there, New Testament scholars, who have no dog in the hunt about Jesus, who are at least honest enough to say that they believe that those who saw the resurrection really believed they saw a resurrection. Scholars in our day, have studied enough of history and enough textual criticism to suggest that whatever they think they saw, they really think they saw a man who was dead rising from the dead. Now, they don't agree with it, but they at least acknowledge the fact that that seems to be the best explanation for why anybody became part of the church. Look, if agnostic scholars in our day can grant that people thought they saw a resurrection, then could we not at least also grant the possibility that they might have seen Jesus work against forces that looked like something other than being in their head? Yeah. Well, what's another option? 
Another option is that Jesus is totally mistaking the mental illness track for the demonic influence track. Okay, that's possible too. There are plenty of people who are sick and who think they're seeing things, to be sure. But you have to recognize and give Jesus a little credit. There are moments where he knows the difference between a physical affliction and an affliction that we might attribute to something otherwise known as darkness. He knows it. In a couple of weeks, we'll talk about the woman that he's, he heals from 12 years of having a hemorrhage. He doesn't say it's a demon in her. He just says she's been sick. So if Jesus knows the, dif- knows the difference between that which is a physical affliction and that which seems to have something more of a spiritual dimension to it, could we give him a little credit? One last possibility. Jesus is manipulating people in a certain way in order to create a certain impression in them, to provoke something from them, again, to trick everybody on sight to make him think that he has some sort of power over forces of darkness. It's another option. Does it sound like Jesus to act without that kind of integrity? I mean, what you know of him, does that sound like something he would do? Okay, if you want to play that hermeneutic of suspicion, you're welcome to it. Take him on balance, and then at least consider the possibility, the possibility that this happened. That his family and these Pharisees have seen enough to conclude either that he's tripping or that he's dealing with darkness. And if he is, then what's going on here is this. Jesus has obviously come to rescue. He is waging some kind of war. And you and I best not domesticate him. And Jesus said as much. Jesus, when he hears what the Pharisees are thinking, you know what he does? He puts on his Dr. Spock ears and he goes, illogical. Tell me again why if I'm an an adjunct of the prince of darkness, that I would take out minions of darkness in order to demonstrate that I am, in fact, have power with darkness. It makes no sense. Kids, some of you are on football teams. Um, and maybe some of you are on the offensive line. Or maybe you're the center. In any given football game, if you're the center, would it make sense on hut for you to trip your right and your left guard so that the linebackers can come and decapitate the quarterback? Does that sound like a game plan to you? It's not a game plan. You take out your offense in order to get creamed by the defense. Brilliant. That's what Jesus is saying here. Does that sound like something I would do? Does that sound logical? It doesn't. That's what he's doing. That's what he's up to. The point of all of that is what you hear in verse 27, where he's going with it all. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then indeed he may plunder his house. Yes, as Jesus likes to do, he likes to talk in in pictures and analogies and metaphors. What's he doing? He's saying a lot in just several words there. One, there's a spiritual domain. Period. It's not everything that you can see, reproduce, put in a randomized clinical trial. There are stuff that is real that you can't see, that you can't manipulate. That's one. Two, A lot of those forces are arrayed against you and everything that God is for. But three, Jesus outmatches them all. He is waging a war 
in a domain that you and I may or may not believe in, who cares, two, that is really up against you, and three, he's on this. Rule number one of thievery, I'm told. Make sure you're stronger than the person guarding the goods. If they can outlast you and beat you, you will take nothing with you. Jesus is saying, I'm the guy. I've bound the strong man, and I've come to take what was his, namely the people that he's afflicted in their own darkness. That's what Jesus had to do. That's the war that he's waging. And at this point, some of you are going, oh my gosh, what do I do with that? What can I do with that? You know what? I'm not asking you to do anything with it. You don't have to understand the intricacies of that war in order to benefit from what he does for you. A few months ago, this country evacuated its personnel from Kabul, and you saw the pictures. You saw the pictures of mommies and daddies handing their babies to soldiers over a wall to get them out of there, to take them to safety. And if you're that baby, you don't have a clue what's going on. You don't know who you're being handed to. You don't know where you are. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what's all the deal. You just know you're benefiting from someone taking you into their possession to rescue you from a place that is not safe for you. Friends, that's you. That's me. I don't have to understand the entirety of what it means to deal with spiritual forces that are arrayed against me, not in order to benefit from what he's doing for me. That's the war that he's waging. I will say this. Maybe the only thing that you and I really need to contend with, it, we probably need to contend with more than any other thing before we start talking about exorcisms. How about we just talk about um, the, the nature of this beast? Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago, if you haven't seen A Quiet Place, you should. Um, uh, Papa, in A Quiet Place, um, he, it's, a, it's a story about aliens that, that somehow get to Earth and, and they're blind, but they have acute hearing. And if they hear you, they will kill you. And so everybody has to be quiet, right? Shh, quiet place. But the father of the family on his whiteboard, he has this. Um, everything that he knows, he, he develops a profile of his enemy. Because he realizes in order to survive, you've got to know your enemy. Okay, here's your enemy, folks. The only thing you need to know about the powers of darkness. He's known as the accuser. That's his nature. To accuse you. To hold you with contempt. To tell you everything that you've ever done wrong. And it's not simply sort of a, a disciplinary word the Lord gives us disciplinary words. This is a word from a voice whispered in your ear that says, do you know what you've done? And how he's washed his hands of you. That's what an accuser does. He can tell you all that you've done wrong, but then offer you nothing in the way of redemption. That kind of sounds familiar these days. That's what an accuser does. And therefore, if you domesticate Jesus, you will think there really is no war. But friends, his war, it's not the same war, but it's in part your war too. And the way his war is your war is that you have to answer the whispers of the accuser with the shouts of a stronger man. 
that when he accuses you of all the things that you did wrong, which may be true, but then says to you, you are nothing as a consequence of it and he will never do anything for you. Friends, you must answer that voice with the voice of a stronger man. And that voice of a stronger man, I feel like, is summarized in what John says in verse John 4, 4, that you ought to memorize. He who is in you is stronger than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You have to answer every time you feel those accusations coming your way with that truth. Answer the whispers with the voice of the strong man. That's your war. That's what you have to do. And that's why you can't domesticate him. Now that was my longest point. The other two will go much quicker. Because there's two other reasons that you can't domesticate him. And the second one has to do with the kind of trust that he is inviting. And, and what do I mean by that? Um, the most radioactive part of this text that you're all going, I want to know about that part, is the part about the unforgivable sin. That there's all sorts of blasphemies that God is cool with. But when you talk about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, that's the unforgivable sin. That's Jesus' response. And so you heard in verses 29 and 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And Man, anybody that's read that text since that time, and probably you tonight, you know, we all kind of start to feel like the disciples at the, at the Last Supper when Jesus says, um, one of you is going to betray me, and everybody goes, is it I? Is it I? And we all look at that and we go, have I done that? What does that mean? We teed it up for Levi, and here was, without preparation, his answer off the cuff. What does Jesus mean by the unforgivable sin there? So my interpretation is uh, it's sort of a little metaphor, if you want to call it that. Um, you know, there's a dog and there's an owner. Um, and, you know, an owner usually takes care of its dog. It feeds it every night, makes sure that it has a bed. It, you know, takes it to the vet. It does all the things that are required to make sure that that dog is taken care of. Um, and when I see blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in this uh, metaphor it's, it's it's like the owner telling the dog to get out to go away i never owned you you were never my dog you have i have no association with you no association with you and it's not the owner saying oh i don't believe in you i don't believe you exist it's saying no i believe you exist i know you're there but i never owned you i never was a part of you i would never had anything to do with you you know, just complete disownment in that metaphor. If you, if you extract that and put it towards you know, the Holy Spirit, it's like that is, is blasphemy. It's like just complete disownment. I, um, without warning, I couldn't do any better. Now, as I hear that, it's a, a, a valuable way of thinking of a kind of estrangement that occurs between two who are meant to be together. And the only thing that I would do to modify Levi's metaphor is to flip the rules. That blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is as if to be the dog who has been well cared for, protected, and rescued by the owner. And it's to, as if to bite the hand that has fed them. 
it is, it is to reject the possibility that that owner has some sort of claim on them. It is to reject the possibility that the owner has some sort of love for him and that he is acting in a way that is to your benefit. And the dog says, I will not take it! And runs off into the night. And that's as if to say to the owner, I'm, I'm out. It is to reject him full hand. Come up with your own metaphor. Levi did a great job. Come up with your own. Look, um, here's the point. What do I think Jesus is getting at here in this passage that I haven't answered all your questions, and if you want to talk about it afterward, we can talk about it afterward, but here's the deal. Here's the, here, here's the point of that. Don't reject him. Don't reject him. Don't reject the hand that is out to feed you with him. Don't reject, that mean, don't reject the one who means for you your eternal good. Don't, don't treat him like someone that is out to do you harm, even though this world will do plenty of harm for you. Don't, don't reject him. Uh, there's a friend of C.S. Lewis. His name was Sheldon Van Alken. Raise your hand if you ever read a, a book called A Severe Mercy. Uh, you should read it. It's, it's, a, it's a true account. Sheldon Van Alken about his, he and his wife, Davy. They're friends with, with C.S. Lewis and, and Joy Gresham. And um, he was an agnostic for a really long time. And through his friendship with C.S. Lewis, he began to entertain the possibility that Jesus might be, in fact, real. And um, Sheldon Van Alken says this really candid thing about rejecting Jesus uh, and he talks about faith in Jesus as some sort of like gap between him and faith. And in his mind, at some point, he could, not, he could not see himself ever leaping across that gap. And so I want you to listen to something that Sheldon Van Auken said that I think, um, I think summarizes maybe how you think about this. Here to go. There's a gap between the probable and the proved, he said. How was I to cross it? If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. I wanted to see him eat a bit of fish. I wanted letters of fire across the sky. I got none of these. And I continued to hang about on the edge of the gap. It was a question of whether I was going to accept him or reject him. And then he says this, My God, there was a gap behind me as well. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a horrifying gamble, but what about the leap to rejection? There might be no absolute certainty that Christ was God, but there was also no certainty that he was not. That was not to be born. I could not reject Jesus. There was only one thing to do once I had seen the gap behind me. I turned away from it, and I flung myself over the gap towards Jesus. Um, I'm guessing, I have no idea whether Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35 were in Sheldon Van Auken's mind at all, but I do know he took its message to heart. Don't reject him. I know you have your reasons, and we all have our reasons, and there are days, even when you haven't, where you feel like you could, but don't reject him. Now, I'm, I'm pretty certain that everybody in this room, I could be wrong, that, that none of you think that Jesus is, uh, is a manifestation of darkness. 
I don't think any of you think that he is a worker of evil. Maybe something else, but not a worker of evil. So in as much as I would say don't reject him on the basis of thinking that is evil, I would also say to you don't reduce him into something that is just more palatable to you. You and I are, are more likely not to reject him as a worker of evil. We're more likely to reduce him as an ethical teacher, as someone with God consciousness, as someone who, you know, was very wise, kind of a revolutionary, a liberator, but that's kind of it. You can't reduce him either. I want to read you two lines from two people, one of whom you've never heard of. I'd never heard of him until last week, and one um, you have heard of. One is a Japanese um, Christian who grew up in Japan, of all places, and uh, which is suffused with Buddhist thought. And he eventually comes to Jesus, and he's there in the early 20th century, and his name is Kanzo Uchimura. And um, of Buddha and Christ, he found a great deal of overlap. But he also saw a distinction that he could not dispute once he came to Jesus. And he, and he put it like this, Buddha is the moon, but Christ is the sun. I love and admire Buddha, but I worship Christ. Not only is he not rejecting him, he's also not reducing Jesus into something that is just merely um, respectable in the eyes of your peers. And that's why Tim Keller will say, if the Son of God was really born in a manger, then we've kind of lost the right to be in charge of our own lives. You and I domesticate Jesus when we think we are not answerable for every word we speak, every choice we make, every purchase we make, every decision we make. We, we kind of think that's, you know, he's got his thing, he talks to me on Sunday, but the other six days, those are mine, and if you encroach, you're not welcome. That's domesticating him. He is the Lord, and we can't reduce him. And may I say, brothers and sisters, and welcome guests, and believers and unbelievers alike, he's also the Lord of your suffering. And this may be far afield from what Jesus ever meant for this moment, but I, I, I want to show you this 45-second clip that you've probably already seen. Millions of people already have. You know those tornadoes that went through Mayfield, Kentucky two weeks ago. But here's a, a really brief clip of, of somebody. I don't need to set it up. You saw it. Just watch. the guy's house and his wife filmed it and the piano survived and they looks like a total loss but he sat down and began to play there's something about that name it's an old gospel hymn 
there are some of you in this room and any number of you that are watching from elsewhere who are in the middle of a kind of, of suffering that I would not ever want. And I would totally understand if the only feelings you had for the Lord right now were hardened thoughts. And I, I am certainly not shaming you for them. But if he is the Lord even of your suffering, then I think what it means to believe that he is the Lord of your suffering is to be softened enough to his goodness that if you could play it, you might even sit down in an open-air living room that once had a roof on it and, and would be able to play that song. If you domesticate him, then, then you will turn him into someone who is there for you and you cheer for him when everything is good, but you, you pretty much come up with other ways to treat him when everything is going awfully. And I think if this is the kind of faith he is inviting to, then that's, that's a microcosm of that faith. Which just means to the last point I think Jesus is out to make here. He, he is waging a war. Can't domesticate him for me to believe that. And he is inviting us to a kind of faith that is a comprehensive faith over all things, even in the midst of our suffering. But, but thirdly, it's also something to do with our family. And again, this, this whole passage is bookended with a moment where the family's outside while he's inside doing his thing teaching. And the text ends where it begins with the family still outside, but at least this point they've gotten a message to somebody else to get inside. Hey, can you send a message? And they come in and they say, hey, your, your, your mother, your brothers, they're outside. Um, they'd like a word. <laughs> and um, Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? And I don't know. I wasn't there. Can you imagine everybody in the room going, oh my gosh, when your mother sees you, she's going to give you the stink eye. You have just done the mic drop. You have just made mom feel second rate and you know you and I we we know about family and family ties are strong and their bonds and yet um, look re you know rewind the tape to that moment the the family bonds meant even more it it meant not just um, affinity and love and intimacy it meant it meant your very security it meant your future you you want a lot of children in order to you know Fight off the raging hordes that were going to come to your land. You needed that. It was more than just a name. And Jesus is here, look, he is not dissing family ties. He is not pretending they are unimportant. He is just aligning them in proper perspective. He's putting loyalties and allegiances in a proper order. He is out to say, I know you love your mom. And in a lot of times, loving your mom and loving God are not at cross purposes with one another. But when they conflict, when you have to choose between obedience to mom and obedience to God, the Lord wins. He should win. He loves you even more than your mother does, or your father does, or your brother does, or anybody else like that. Now, what's the implication? that you will need people who can, are most furnished to supply you the encouragement and the kindness and the reminder and sometimes the reproof that you need in order to walk in this way. Why? 
One last time. Listen to Levi speak off the cuff about this question. Sort of a, a uh, what do you consider family? What's the definition of family? Is it blood to blood or is it thought to thought? Is it the same ideology or is it simply we share the same genes? And I would say that it's a little bit of both. Um, there are times where like my dad and I, we, sh we share the same ideologies. We share the same discernment. Um, but we also share the same blood and we think the same. Um, and you know, that's, that's, that's family. Maybe, maybe there's a factor of like, it can be awkward to talk to family members about certain things. Whereas with my friend, Adam, the same guy who went overseas, um, we just jive, um, ideologically. We've read a lot of the same books spiritually. Like we can, we, we can sword fight with each other spiritually and intellectually and like actually get into conversations that are deep and meaningful and um, point, poignant maybe is the word. Um, and we can get into that. Whereas with my brother, you know, he's not a believer and it's like, he's my brother, but like we, we have a conversation, we have a connection, but it only goes to a certain point. And then it's like, okay, it's like, there's not, it's like, where, it's like, where is this going? It's not, it's not that down to the root connection. Whereas with Adam, it's like, yeah, there's a down to the root connection. That's not, that's not apparent with my non-believing family. I'm grateful for his honesty. Look, I hope that you heard it. He was very clear. The family ties he has, the bonds that he has with those who share a last name with him, he loves them. They're important to him. They are not without meaning. They were not without substance. They are not without strength or encouragement to him. Hear that. But there's also a limitation to them if they do not also share a common animating spirit with the belief that I am not my own. That I belong to one who has demonstrated to me a kindness no one ever has and no one else ever will. That's why it matters. And by implication, Jesus is saying, not only are these people your true family, they are the ones you will most need to walk in this way. Because he has given us all sorts of ideas. But he has also given us to each other to help us walk in those ideas, to help us believe in those ideas, especially in the days when we don't believe in those ideas. Um, I'll give you a very candid Silly illustration. Um, last month, uh, my wife and I are winterizing our RV, which means you have to drain all the tanks and put the pink stuff in it. It's 9 o'clock, it's Saturday night, and it's cold, and the wind is whipping, and I'm outside with all of the elements listening to this thing drain as if it had a prostate problem. And I'm there for like 20 minutes. It's just cold, whipping, and how shall I put this? Um, I'm thinking to myself, why didn't she take the plug off sooner? Why didn't we do this before the sun set? And, and I'm having, I'm, I'm beginning to entertain the possibility of self-pity. 
feeling sorry for myself for listening to this thing drain while I'm out here in the cold. And then I remembered many of your faces. And for those of you that are for whom I'm praying, who without exception, I am quite certain, would gladly trade whatever you are struggling with in that moment with me standing outside my RV being chilly. You would do that in a heartbeat. You would take that hands down. And in that moment, I needed you. I needed you to remind me of what was important. I needed you to refine me in the moment and therefore I, I began to pray for you. Please don't be impressed. But in that moment, who's my family? My wife's my family. She reminds me too. But you are too. And to be in this family of faith means that there are plenty of days in which you don't have any faith and therefore people, other people have faith for you in the moment. But it also means that there are days in which you will need them to say, shut up. And I needed it in that moment. And you will too. And that's why I would just ask by way of it. We, we domesticate Jesus when you treat this room like you treated the lecture hall in college if you went to college. You show up, you throw your bag down, you sit down near, you pull out your laptop or whatever notes you're going to do, you listen to the dude lecture, you finish, the bell rings, everybody gets up, they leave, they hit their smartphones. They don't talk to anybody. Friends of constituencies and groups, this does not fall in that category. And I know relationships and community are messy, and any number of you probably have stories of being in groups or communities where you're like, thanks, that hurt me a lot, and I get it. I'm just saying, you'll need each other. And that's why I kind of ask you rhetorically speaking, is there anybody in this room or anybody in any room anywhere with whom you could look upon their face with a kind of affection that you might also share with somebody who is a member of your blood family? Is there anybody that you can speak with about the things that are nearest, most candid, and most embarrassing? Are there anything, is there anyone that can speak into your life a word of encouragement that reminds you of who you are and that you do not belong to yourself? Please don't domesticate Jesus by living that world in which there is no one to speak those things or be those things for you. Where do we find the strength not to domesticate him? Because I feel the strength and the impulse to domesticate him all the time. I find it here. And that's where this whole sermon, you begin to apply it when you come here to, to this table. Don't domesticate him. Instead, feed on him. Um, this was in the wings uh, Friday night, and I couldn't see it, and I kicked it, and it fell over. I know. I'm sorry, Molly. And we thought, ah, it's worthless now. And I said, don't throw it away. Herman Melville in Moby Dick, he says, have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike. We are all roundly cracked in the head, badly in need of mending. Jesus' chalice or cup that night was not broken, but he was about to entrust to his disciples a treasure that was in jars of clay that leak and are cracked. And that's you, and that's me. 
And therefore, you begin to not domesticate him by first coming to feed on him. Why? Because he entered into our world, into the strong man's world, and bound that strong man, ironically, by letting himself be bound. By letting himself be plundered of everything that he had, including his own life, to take everything in order to overpower that strong man that we might be his in order that he might deal not just with our sins that are in need of forgiveness, but with an adversary that meant for you harm to hold you captive from which you needed ransom. And he did so to form a new family that would not just nod their heads and sing a bunch of songs and a bunch of ideas, but would start to love one another even to the heart, to heart where it began to hurt. You don't domesticate him by learning how to feed on him by faith on the basis of what he has done for you. And so we will. And so we're about to. Let him grow up. Oh, rejoice in that. Celebrate in that. He is you. He has your fullness. He takes on everything you regret, but he also takes on the adversary that just means for you harm. And when he does grow up, he will not be presentable in many places. He will be offensive in ways like, shh, I'm not going to be quiet. Don't domesticate him. Feed on him. Let's pray. Father, as weary as we may be, I pray that you would help our zeal for what is true and what is good and what is beautiful not to flag. And I pray that you would help us to see him as one that we cannot control, nor that should we ever And though it's in our insecurity and sin that we are embarrassed by him, I pray that you might help us to see him as one whom we love, in whom we rejoice, in whom we are glad to know that he is glad to call us friends. And so, Father, help us to feed on him and to have blessing in him that we might be like he is in this world for all, with love and mercy and justice in Jesus' name. Amen.